Welcome. I am Anders Bolling, and this is Mind the Shift, a podcast about a shifting world and an integrating world. My guest today is B. Puranan. For those with a deep interest in global development, B. Puranan is a respected expert on social and cultural trends in the world. She has studied economic history, sociology, and demography, and her PhD thesis from 1984 was about the fight against tuberculosis, TB, in Sweden. She's an associate professor in economic history, uh, and she's tied to the Institute for Future Studies in Stockholm. Since 1996, she is also the secretary general of the World Values Survey, a global network of social scientists studying changing values and their impact on social and political life. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Anders. I hope I was uh, correctly uh, presenting you in this with this CV. You can add, add something if you want to. <laughs> it's, it's completely okay. Thank you okay. so much. Uh, I understand that you just did a hike in the Swedish mountains uh, for a week or so. How, how was that? Was it cold and windy or what? No, actually, we were pretty lucky. We had, uh, we had fantastic weather, actually. It shouldn't be too sunny when you're up because mountaineering and walking the whole days, you get so tired if it's too sunny. So it was cloudy and perfect weather and very nice. It was me, my daughter and my husband, and we had plenty of time. So no, it was great. You know, it's a fantastic thing with these uh, iPhones you have today. I didn't realize it, but when I just looked at it in the evening and I saw that we had been walking 30 kilometer in a day. Well, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, 30, imagine that. I was so impressed. You don't understand these things because you're just walking there, enjoying life. And, and, then you see, and also, it's quite funny. It, it, it says we were, we were also getting up on, on one mountain and that was really exhausting. And then it said that we had made 27 stores up in a, in a Oh, yeah, yeah. 27 stories. <laughs> yes. That's a new way of measuring climbing a skyscraper. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, is this your favorite kind of vacation to go up in the well, mountains? Well, you do it every year, but most okay. years. Now, these last five, six years, we've been to different islands the Outer Hebrides, the Shetland Island, the Faroe Island. Um, colder places, not too hot. Ah. I ah. guess that's because um, you think better when it's not too hot. I mean, well, I, I must say, I'm I'm the opposite. I'm a very bad Viking, I have to admit, because <laughs> I came very much up in the Swedish mountains uh, just a, a couple of times when I was a kid, and uh, I, I almost always go south. You know, I go to the Medi Mediterranean and hot countries. <laughs> you so see, I'm we a bad Viking. We have oh, a house no. uh, just uh, north from from Kananis, and it's right now it's 38 degrees there. And we just said me and my mm. husband to each other, poor people being there because it's uh, yeah. too, it's too hot. even for me that's a bit much I must say. Mm. But 28 30 is good for me. We never go uh, there in, in in summertime, and we rent it out so that we can afford having it in the winter time. And then we go there in the winter time, and it's lovely to be there in December, January. It's just great for walking, for example. It's really great. Oh, yeah, yeah. But these are strange times, talking about traveling to different places. People don't travel right now. We'll see what happens the, the coming winter, if you will. Are you planning on going there, or you don't know what's going to happen with well, the possibility of traveling? France is pretty good because you can, you can take your car 
and then you can control things yourself quite a lot. You don't have to. Oh, that's true. But my husband has been there. He had to, to prepare the house. It was like a jungle after the lockdown. You know, the whole of France was totally locked down. So not even the people um, helping us with cutting the grass, etc., could go there. And you should mm -hmm. see the pool. It was really green, green. And it was like a jungle around the, the whole house with everything. So, so it's a disaster for, for really, if you look at it in the small format, what happens yeah. to houses, to people, to to humans. And now we're talking about uh, Europe. Can you imagine this in a more, on a global scale, what is happening when you have a lockdown, all the habits that people have all around the world. I mean, it's totally interrupted. And, and there's yeah. consequences. This is, of course, the, uh, the most topical, topical uh, subject right now, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, I was thinking of asking yeah. you a little bit or quite a bit actually about it yeah. because you have you have recently written about these um, the, the effects that you're now mentioning here mm -hmm. the potentially huge impact of this pandemic on gender equality and women's economic empowerment you you say you pointed out that that it is unraveling across the world how is this happening and what is happening to women yeah, around it's so scary it's really really scary well i think to to to, to really understand, to put it into a context, so to speak. Uh, I think there are two things happening. I mean, two things starting with the COVID-19. Uh, one of, an, of it is that we have, since many, many years, developed systems within uh, with classic ec epidemic control. I mean, that's strategies we have. And we use these strategies quite successfully. For example, the disease that I've been studying for 10 years, tuberculosis. I mean, we know pretty well what to do. And that comes to other uh, diseases, like when the Ebola came a couple of years ago, the SARS, etc. But what happened now when we got struck, when we saw everything happening in China, and then when it suddenly came to, to Northern Italy, was a total breakdown of, of, of systems that we have agreed on, on a global scale, and with, with politicians getting terrified and frightening. And then came this, that was really, uh, an, 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 there was a big study made, uh, at the Imperial College by, by a researcher. Oh yeah, this is a famous study yes, in March. I mean, because it was like a bomb hitting the, the Western world or, or the whole world actually, when they had calculated that from April, when they did that up until October, I mean, just not even half a year, uh, there would be, if nothing was done, just in UK, 500,000 people were going to be dead by COVID-19. And if we did the normal mm -hmm. epidemic control strategies, like we do in Sweden, I mean, with, with, where, you, where you have home quarantine, you have social distancing, you, you, and, 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 and what we have proven working quite well, um, even though they said 250 people were going to be dead, uh, and then they said 250,000. Yes, thousand. Yeah. 250,000 yeah. people are going to die yes. before October. And you can imagine the politicians and, 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 and other people. Of course, people were really scared. So, uh, what they advocated for was, was a, a lockdown of the society, mm. closing the borders. And that happened. But it didn't just happen in, 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 in UK. They had also calculated that for the US, within the same time span, 1.1 uh, or 1.2 million people were going to get uh, killed. And you know, mm. Trump, who, when, when he got that kind of figures, and then the rest of the world. So 
country after country was locked. And when they were lock, locking down, they were also locking down school systems, yeah. which we haven't done, but most countries, you have 54 countries in, in, in Africa, 50 of them have uh, some kind of lockdown of school system. And what happens mm. then on a global well, then happens terrible things because when kids can't go to school, well, one thing they didn't learn, but they, maybe that's the only meal they get for a day, the one. And what happens when people are locked into very small flats and you have aggressions coming in between parents and children and between men and women, etc. So an awful lot of things happening. And the other very sad thing was the, the westernized bias that we have thinking about how it's in the western cultures like mm. well uh, elderly people are struck heavily struck by COVID-19 90-95% of all deaths in Spain in Italy in Sweden are above age 65 yeah. and then when you calculate and you think like the world is like that well then you get very wrong figures because if you think about Africa you have 2%, some countries almost 3% uh, being above 60 years of, of age, 65 years mm. of age. So, so you don't have any this big group of elderly people. But what happened instead, I mean, in a country like India, you have 5% being uh, above 65. What happened instead was that this, this lockdown caused much more severe harm to these countries than the COVID-19, because as you know, as we know, COVID-19 is not so, I mean, you don't die for it when you're younger. You, can, you get it, but you can get mild, or you can get, some die, but very few. But the effect of this, the Gutmacher Institute in New York, they, they, they work a lot with sexual and reproductive health rights and what's happening with teenagers and with women. And they have calculated now during the same time span as this Imperial College in London has that 15 million, 15 million unwanted pregnancies. Imagine that. Oh, and really? And are teenagers. And oh. they have counted on child marriages, the increase of child marriages. You know, even if it's forbidden in many, many countries, they do have these symbolic marriages. And after the symbolic child marriage, then you also start getting children, which means- Are, are, are we talking about Africa now or is this the whole so-called global South or what? Uh, what? Uh, the um, the Gutmacher study is made for low and middle income countries also in Asia in other parts of the world or countries where you have low incomes. So they take in all countries with low, low and middle income countries, not only Africa. But basically, the effect is the same. You, you can see it in India. You can see it in, in Asia. You can also see it in, in, in Latin America, for example. Um, and, and that is, uh, I mean, and then the healthcare system breaks down when, you do, when transportation is not coming in with medical equipment. You can't have condoms or other contraceptives coming in. So it has a, such a huge uh, effect. So and I was going to ask about the mechanism. What, what is it that is leading to 15 million unwanted pregnancies? What are the mechanisms? Is it the, the fact that there are no contraceptives arriving or are there? That's a big one. And other mechanisms Imagine this? youngsters, teenagers not going to school, being bored, not having so much to do. So you, 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 you'll be with other youngsters that you can be. And I mean, it's also a natural process when you are young and hormones in your body and, and nobody's there around. So it's not only 
um, the uh, violence, sex, sexual assault, and things. What that happens when people do not have food, proper food, proper they're not working. I mean, there are losses of job and the in a poverty situation because this has been a huge effect, huge backlash when it comes to to, to poverty. We are back maybe ten years in the development. We have been. Mm. Better and better and better, and uh, increased the, the the success in in fighting poverty. But now it's sliding back again. So all this is happening, and, and I can't help being so feeling so sad about us in the West being so ignorant and believing like the world is like here. So we can do these kind of calculations. We can scare these uh, politicians who are really not knowledgeable enough in in these areas. So that, that I feel really very sad for that. At the same time, this, this study that you're referring to, it's a Western study. It's made in New York in the, in, at a New York Institute. So maybe it's also, uh, <laughs> it's not looking at what is actually happening on the ground. It's, is it more a theoretic, theoretical uh, calculation or have they actually been yeah. to these yeah. countries and, and interviewed people and, and looked at what's actually happening? You, you got a point there, but if you talk about Gutmach, they are really very good and they are working with the feeds on the ground in all countries around the world. It's not, it's not, it's not um, uh, mathematical simulations like, like the ones made at, at the Imperial College. So you really need to, to, to see who is the sender of information. It's, so it's very good you put that question. And, and I would say more people, especially people in decision power, should ask these questions. Because it's, we live in such a dangerous society now when, when you don't know uh, who is the sender. And uh, how well grounded is this kind of knowledge we have? Um, I, we can see it, for example, lack of data. If, if you do not have data, I mean, uh, what can you base your assumptions on? When it comes to these things, like like the adolescence period with the teenagers, if you don't know, if you don't do proper studies, interviewing them, uh, having good statistics, and being transparent so that you can test. Uh, that's what we do with the World Value Survey, for example. I mean, we are out there face to face, meeting people, interviewing people in m more than 100 countries. We would like it to be all countries, but <laughs> we are not let into to North Korea and some other countries. But Still but, impressive with 100 countries, I must say. Yeah, and we've done it since 1981. Imagine that. So we have time series. We started at a time before the internet. I mean, you can imagine the researchers that started, Ron Engelhardt, who was the founder, founding father of this. I mean, you need to be a true uh, enthusiastic person wanting to have knowledge. And and it's, yes, uh, it's fantastic that, that and, and people ask, how, how, do you, how do you fund it? And the truth is, is that it's, it's a non-governmental organization, non-profit, we, we ask for, for support. Sometimes we get support, but the, the most common way of, of, of doing it is that people within the countries, researchers at the universities, uh, go and ask for funding inside their own countries. Some countries, can't do that fail. And then we try to fund it. For example, now we have had in this eighth wave, a very good um, uh, support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation when it comes mm -hmm. to Africa and India, uh, because they realize that this data is so valuable and the, the people working on the ground with, for example, um, sexual and reproductive health rights, uh, it's important to have really good data. So they have made it possible for us to do this kind of studies. We just finished now in Zimbabwe, 
we uh, and Ethiopia, and we're waiting for doing Rwanda and India, but the COVID-19 came just in the middle. Uh, what we will do now when the, we got the, the COVID-19 situation is adding on a lot of questions on the COVID-19. Yeah. And what we do now, which is also very uh, interesting, is within the World Value Survey, that's we are doing a COVID-19 study, a longitudinal one, mm-hmm. where I think it's 10, 10, 11 countries right now, it will be more countries, where, where we started with interviewing in April, May, and uh, then we go back to the very same people uh, late this autumn to see how do values and social norms change? How do uh, the COVID-19 situation um, with the hit people? And then we will wait a year and see again what will happen. So this is the kind of studies yeah. we do. Super interesting. And, and I think really it's going to be really useful for all these kinds of studies that are going to be made around this, this pandemic because there are going to be thousands of studies, of course. Uh, I want to dive deeper into this World Value Service uh, survey um, work that you're doing. Uh, but first, I want to go back a little bit to this, uh, this problem with um, the, the unwanted pregnancies and all, all these, these, these uh, uh, devastating um, detrimental things that are happening because of the lockdown rather than because of the virus in these uh, poorer countries. Because, I mean, the countries in I was myself very, very surprised when so many countries in Africa decided to have a lockdown uh, because, I mean, they were the countries, they were the governments that actually decided on this. The Western world didn't decide for the Africans to lock down. So the Africans, they they locked down themselves. Although, I mean, I couldn't even understand why. Why do you think that was? Was it just to show strong leadership or what was it? Partly, partly, I guess. uh, I mean, it's still too early to to know, but it's also respect for research when, when s- something like this uh, team on Imperial College came with, uh, with their, I mean, and it was mathematical simulations and you could see the curves going up and down. And you know that these people are really, you believe that they are really knowledgeable in this. I guess they felt like it was supported the, by, by research. Uh, and who, who, are, who are you if you are a politician in a country in Africa to, to doubt that? And other researchers were too slow in, in uh, responding and say, hey, wait, the assumptions behind this, if we change the assumptions a bit, we will have a totally different uh, uh, amount of num- numbers. And they start, and started the internal critique. But the problem is the internal critique is internal. So it never reaches, it, it didn't reach the, these people um, that made these decisions. It, it ha, even had difficulties in reaching into the WHO system, it took some time. And then one, we have a, a Swedish um, epidemiologist and he, he was working with the WHO. And then he, he said something like um, that this study, he concluded had been one of the most influential scientific paper in memory, but also one of the most wrong. Oh, <laughs> the and Imperial then, College study you're referring yeah, to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so of course, uh, it's not easy if you are uh, working as an epidemiologist in Africa. So, uh, I talked with, with Anders Tegnell about this. I mean, and he, he was a bit puzzled too, because he's been really working a lot with classic epidemic control. And he's mm. been in the, the Swedish state epidemiologists. Yeah. yeah. 
exactly. And so he's really knowledgeable and he's been, been and he's working with all these international teams. But it was like a flood wave in a way. Uh, and, and, and the decisions were taken so fast. And there was really not time for this um, reflection that is needed within uh, scientific uh, society. It just happened and now we can see the effects. We start to see the effect. They're probably even worse than this because we haven't even talked about the effect on the economy, which of course will be devastating once we start mm. to sum it up on a global. Mm. Uh, I mean, we still don't know even on that, but it also shows the vulnerability. It's good that we have trust in, in research and we should have, and we should have confidence in it. But we must realize that it's slow processes. And when an epidemic um, hits fast, it's, it's mm. really like a flood wave. So we need to also be better. We need to have communicators, people like you, like journalists who are also sci scientific journalists who can communicate maybe more directly than, uh, than shall we say, academic uh, people do. They don't feel comfortable unless they have not only written and done the analysis, they also would like to, to have it peer reviewed to feel safe. And the peer review processes takes time. It's good yeah. that you have them, but you need to have something in between. And also you need to know the, the knowledge behind. I mean, uh, what kind of personality? I mean, this guy, Neil Ferguson, I think he has apologized afterwards because obviously he, he used very old uh, mathematical uh, simulation models, assumptions, yeah. but then it had already happened. Yeah, uh, but the thing is that nobody knew anything at the beginning. It's yeah. a new virus. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. you can't blame him and his team entirely either, but you can blame the people who, who just went after that um, study and, and, and nothing else. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I mean, you have yourself in World Value Service, you have other relevant, for this topic, very relevant studies and service, and uh, one of which being about the elderly. I mean, we are in the midst of a fierce debate, as you are mentioning now, about the severity of the virus and, and even its modus operandi. We don't really exactly know how, how it's hitting. We are starting to, to learn it. But we do know that the people who get the most seriously ill, as you mentioned, belong to vulnerable groups in the population like the elderly. And in the most recent uh, Global World Values survey, you asked about attitudes towards elderly people in the world. And I would spontaneously, personally, guess that the attitude towards elderly people is perhaps a bit more respectful in what we call the Global South than in the Western world. But maybe on the other hand, this, it's a different story if you if you're um, looking at how, how elderly people perceive their own life situation. So can you tell us a little bit more about that study and what it says about the elderly in, in this pandemic? Yeah, yeah. It happened so that I did a study a couple of years ago about, um, we have questions on where we ask people about social positioning of people being in their 20s, their 40s and 70s. I know, how, how do you consider their social position in, in your society? And we ask that in all these, uh, so, so we can really compare with exactly the same question. And it's a fine 10 grade scale, so we can really see it. And then we saw that 
we are very used in, especially in the Nordic countries, to be very modern. We have, we are emancipated values are extremely high, high trust, uh, high confidence in, in, in organizations and also in institutions and welfare systems, etc. And then when I got the data, I was just shocked because Sweden was the second worst country in the world when it came to, <laughs> wow. yeah, with social positioning of age 70. I mean, uh, and I started to dig into the data. How, how was there something wrong? Are we, we have a very good system, I thought, I believed, with the, with the, the welfare system for, for elderly people. Uh, but uh, when it came to positioning them, whether they were needed or and appreciated in society, um, it, the, the figures are very bad for 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 Sweden. So, which country was the worst? If Sweden was the second worst, Estonia. Okay, <laughs> so it's not far okay. away from me. I, just I, just out of curiosity. Yeah, but you can you can see a pattern. You can see that the countries with the lowest position that that's um, um, it's um, we don't have that question for many countries in the Nordic. We have it for Sweden, and then we have it for uh, and that's because uh, uh, we have two different questionnaires. Uh, but we have them for Eastern Europe for all the countries. They're also quite low. All the Eastern Europe is low. I mean, they are not that valuated. Uh, another part where they are also quite low is Latin America, like Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, Argentina, and these countries also. But n- none as low as Estonia and Sweden. And uh, what we saw when we, when we then crossed this variable with another... Uh, question we said uh, old people have too much political influence as a statement uh, that was certainly not a problem in Sweden we are very low on that too we, they, they, they have low positioning but they have no impact but if you look at the the MENA region Middle East region and North Africa you could see that uh, that positioning was very high in these societies um, and also but all, but at the same time as it, they, they had a high social position most other people, not being themselves old, uh, said that old people have too much influence. So they both felt that they have a strong social position, but that they had too much political influence. They were like mm-hmm. um, putting a lid on the society, not making it possible for young people to, to come up and thrive and, and, and develop and develop their society. So in a way that they stop the process of, of, of um, uh, developing societies. So, so there's a glass ceiling, so to speak, for yeah, younger yeah, people. Yeah, in a way, what we talk about when it comes to, to, to the women's situation, uh, they very much felt that they, as youngsters, had not the possibility because these elderly people were not only having control over the families, but they were also having control in society. Uh, and in, in all the systems within the society. So I think this is really something that's very important that we look at, not only what things we develop, but also what, what hinders development. And obviously having that kind of glass ceiling, if you call it that, uh, in many countries in Africa, for example, in Middle East, uh, it's really something to look at and to find out how do you solve it. Mm. Um, one thing is that when you do not have a welfare system with a retirement, uh, getting, re- getting good economic revenues, at least decent uh, revenues, uh, you are totally dependent on, on your family or, or on the bigger family, on the clans. That means that they will have much 
power and the state will not have so much power. So you have also difficulties in how to, how to build democracy in these kind of countries. I mean, imagine a country like, I've been studying Somalia a bit in a study we do with the migrants. Um, and if, when we ask and interview migrants coming from Somalia, from Eritrea uh, to, to Sweden, and we talk with them about why did you move? Why did you emigrate? It's not only um, the official um, reasons that we have for war, etc. It, mm. But it's also that the systems are dysfunctional. You don't have these kind of systems where you can take care of your elderly. So if you migrate to another country, you can send remittances home. And thus you can help your elderly. So in, in a way, it's also a push factor, not just a pull factor. We have in our rich countries only looked at it as, oh, we are giving them too much or that's kind of stuff that people <laughs> say in discussions. But actually there is this push factors to be able to send remittances home. And also there you have the COVID influence. I mean, when people then can't continue their jobs and they have to go home, then the remittances also will, will, will stop. So that also adds on the burden of the COVID-19 situation. And remittances are actually many times bigger than the official uh, development aid, I think, in the world. Yes, yes, yes. You, have, right. you have the figures, I think it's five times bigger or something like yes, that. Yes, yes, it's enormous. It's enormous. That makes this society sur survive. So it's extremely important. And mm. what happened too, when people started to move, like, like for example, in India, when they, in, in, in the evening, the prime minister says, uh, I think seven o'clock or something, that now we're going to, to close down the whole India. Whole India, imagine that, at 12 o'clock at midnight. People mm. rushed out on the, on, on the roads to go, to, to go home because in the cities, I mean, if you talk about um, home quarantine, if you live on the street already, I mean, you don't have a home. The home is far away. And you're forced to go out on on the roads. I mean, it's. I know. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is. It is. It's so sad. Well, these surveys that you are referring to all the time here, this, it's it's really fascinating. You have been surveyed, surveying. You said Ronald Inglehart was the founder of this in the '80s, and you you have been the Secretary General of World Value Service since '96, and you have surveyed values among people all over the world for for such a long time that that this data is is truly a gold mine uh, and I mean you, you, I can ask you about any kinds of trends I guess but I'm, I'm, I want to focus on something that is on many people's mind these days uh, apart from the pandemic of course there's a lot of worry about uh, what is considered a serious setback for democracy and uh, paralleled with this uh, an up um, a rise of right-wing populism and xenophobia that is gaining ground and many people consider this as a problem that there are there's a discussion whether this is whether this is a problem for democracy or not but are these trends that you can detect in your wvs surveys the setbacks for democracy and the the rise of uh, right-wing populism and xenophobia yeah. Yes, unfortunately, we can see it. Yes, we can. And there's been a huge debate around it uh, also within the network of the World Value Survey, because some of the leading people, not just um, um, running Inglat, as you mentioned, but Chris Welsel, for example, and, and Pippa Norris, who is very active in our network, she's been doing fantastic studies uh, where on, on, on electoral practice and malpractice, which is a part, very important part of, of 
the question on democracy. So uh, it, to, to begin with, when we had some, some studies coming up, uh, I think it was in wave five, that is um, around 2013, 14, uh, up, up until 15, uh, they said, no, it, the, yes, it's a problem, but probably it will not strike uh, true democracies. Uh, I mean, the Western style of democracies uh, so much, but it's more a problem for, for countries which, which lack the stability of history of being democratic for a longer time and where you have kind of swing, swings between different uh, national regimes, etc. Uh, but now I think it's turned. So even Pippa and Ron and others are, are acknowledging the, I mean, after Trump, I mean, they, they, this was just before Trump, so they hadn't really experienced it that by themselves in their own country in the US, uh, I mean, which they considered as a strong democracy. Uh, so what you can see today is more a much more um, downtown, uh, we try to understand the mechanisms around xenophobia and populism. And our data are great for that because we have really asked about these questions. We've asked people about what they consider as uh, being democratic. And we have seen already since long ago that in many countries, people can say, we have a list of things you, we ask them to acknowledge, is this a part of uh, essential for democracy? For example, letting the military rule uh, if you don't think that the politics works. If you then in a country says, well, that's okay, that's democracy. Or if they say, let the, the religious leader uh, create the laws, that's also okay within a democracy. Then you realize that the, the, that the technical term democracy can be filled with so many peculiar things which you brought up in a, in a Western society would never consider us being democratic. So there is a lot of, of important um, discussions that is needed in all over the world around concepts like democracy. What do we mean with democracy? And this goes, uh, when, you have, when you talk about populism, we have some certain signs, which is always there, the way of, of trying to make talk in a more general way where you simplify things. You really simplify things. What I think we have done as a mistake working for promoting democracy is we need also to simplify. You need to simplify the, the messages why democracy is important in the same way because otherwise uh, these um, populistic uh, persons uh, saying, I have the solution. I know how to make America great again, or, uh, or like uh, Viktor Orban now in, in, in Hungary, etc. in many, many countries. If, if they come with quick solutions and you have a population which is not so well educated, well, they can be brought up in an authoritarian system, for example, where they have learned that what the leader says, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time to change people's mindset into reflecting themselves and daring to, uh, to view other Line, lines of reasoning than the official ones. And we have underestimated the, 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 the easiness for these, these uh, groups of people growing also mm -hmm. in many countries. And we underestimated- there has, been, there has been resentment for a long time in the large swathes of the population in many countries, which yeah. we haven't been able to detect before. We haven't even known that it was there. So yes. we thought that it didn't exist. And now people are saying these things. And that means that we are, we are discovering them. 
Yeah. It's maybe it could be that could be the thing that we are discovering these uh, opinions rather than that the opinions are rising now. They've been like submarines, you know. They've been there all yes. the time. And but but it's it's you need to how to detect a submarine. I mean that, that's what you need to do when it comes to democracy to, to find exactly. tools to do that and know what you what you need to look for and watch out for. For example, already early in the school system, etc. And uh, you can you can see, for example. I've been doing studies on, on migration now for a while. Uh, when people move from one study, I can take a very concrete example, Iraq. There is a study done in Iraq uh, using our data. And then they had added one question and that was, could you, could you think about migrating? And could you reflect yes or no on that? Mm -hmm. And then when, when we looked into um, our survey from Iraq, and then we divided the population into those, those who answered yes and those who answered no on that question. We could see that the value systems, the social norms, or people saying, no, I could not think about it. And the ones who said, yes, I, I, I would uh, think that that's an option for me. We could see the value systems were very dif different. So we tend to believe that migrants coming from Iraq, they are all the same like in Iraq, but they aren't. The ones mm. uh, uh, migrating have much more openness to a mod modern ways of thinking uh, when it comes to, for example, um, emancipation, uh, attitudes towards young people and, and how to bring up autonomy and that kind of stuff. So we need to complicate the picture too, not just to have these black and white pictures like we in the West, we are the democratic people and they are not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that's not true. There's a lot of people in most of the countries where migrants come from who are really into deep reflections and knowledge around issues around democracy. But we do not treat them like that when they come here. We just kind of uh, look at, so that's why it's so important that we do these kind of studies where we compare different, I mean, themes within a country of origin with themes in country of destination, in our case, Sweden, uh, because we also have these uh, undercurrents in Sweden with the populism. I mean, we're not free from that, no, no oh, country. No from that. So we need to do this kind of much more sensitive analytical work. So when we get data on, for instance, that shows that more people want to are considering mi migrating from their countries that we considered being poor countries, Northern Africa, Middle East, wherever, that might actually be a sign that more people in these countries uh, are modernizing their mindsets yeah is that yeah. correct yes yes oh, yeah. yes that's and very that's fascinating really, it's fascinating and it's so important um, we were so surprised we did a, i did a study together with pippa norris um, we called it hygge because we don't have a swedish term for hygge the the danish term hygge that you feel good uh, yeah. feel, it, it was labeled feeling at home in a cold climate we were so surprised that so many of our migrants from non-european countries were feeling at home in Sweden. And we couldn't understand how can they feel at home here? It's so cold and we are so inbound introvert persons and, uh, and they have such a difficulties getting into the labor market and they have to struggle with the Swedish language. How come they feel, they feel at home here? So we interviewed them, asking them how come? And, and then we could see a totally upside down pattern than what we had believed. And I think it explains a lot. Uh, if you, I mentioned Somalia earlier. If you, if you imagine you come from Somalia, a country where uh, 
2%, 2.3% of the population is above 65. When you interview people being above 65 or being 40 to 50 from Somalia, they, they wouldn't have so much time left to live. But now suddenly they have maybe 20 years more to live because there's mm -hmm. a health system and, and it's a more affluent society. So they were very grateful, the elder, especially women who were um, illiterate in their home country. And they came to Sweden. The first thing that happened is that they, they are put on, in, into school system, the kind of school system we have for, for migrants to learn to, to write and read and write. And they were so happy for that. And they felt that we were all doing this for them. So in a way, it made sense for them to, to feel at home because they got these things. I will not um, exaggerate it because we have really not done what we could do, but at least it shows that um, the people you might think are the least one to, to benefit from, from coming to another country, they do benefit and we, we do see a development and also what we talked about earlier, the possibility of remittances, the contact they have, uh, and for example, we learned uh, when it comes to COVID-19 and we did interviews around that, that uh, they listen to, to the TV from their home countries. So it's very important when you talk about what kind of information do people get? Well, they do not always listen to the public health authorities in, in a country like our Western countries. Uh, they listen to, to their home or country of origin. So it's very important to also work with uh, the, the health uh, authorities in the different countries because it's, it's an open world today when it comes to that kind of communication. Exactly. That's what this podcast is about, an integrating world, <laughs> which yeah, has yeah. impacts on all sectors of life. And uh, it's not really that acknowledged, actually, it's surprisingly. Yeah, yeah, it should be, little. because this, this, is like, this is really very strong impacts. And when, uh, when, you can, when you say that, you know, you have a theory since before, a, a socialization theory saying that your, your values and social norms comes when you're young and then you keep it for the rest of your life. I would say that we need to revise it because if you look at the migrants, the ones who are not the, the young ones, say the ones above 30, 40, they change mindset too. We can mm. show, we have shown in our studies that they do change mindset because they see, they see with their own eyes and in their own experience that, well, it's not good to, 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 to harm kids, for example, by slashing them. It's not a good way of educating them. They see um, fathers going with, with, a, with, a, with a small children, yeah. taking care of them, coming to the daily cares center, that it's not just a mom thing, it's a family mm. thing, etc. And they do change. Mm. Well, that's the best thing about uh, the... the the way that globalization should work if it works as it's supposed to, that you take the best things from your own culture and your own social um, uh, context with you and you adopt, you adapt to the things that are good in the country that you, that you, that yeah. you arrive in. Yeah. So that sounds, sounds like a good thing. So it's also very interesting that you're finding that people are changing within their, their own, I mean, We've heard experts, sociologists, psychologists, criminologists even talking about second generation uh, immigrants, of course, changing mindsets and, and becoming more like the, the, the other peoples in the, in the, the country of, of immigration. But, um, but you are- We are studying the first generation, but, but, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the second generation, sometimes the second generation has more problem than the first because the first- Why is that? 
they, the first they compare with their country of origin, the home country, and they get so much better. They get better food and education and, and uh, a lot of things. And, they, and amongst all democracy and lack of violence. Uh, so they, they, and they have that fresh in mind. When, when you go, come to the next generation, the youngsters growing up in Sweden, they compare themselves with other youngsters, not with their parents and what happened in the country. Where well, of course, yeah. Yes, Makes and then sense. they feel, why do, why do I not have the best uh, iPhone? When my, well, why can't we travel and why can't we, etc.? So they have their difficulties in the second generation, which we really need to focus on. And they are, it's a risk that they will be victims for this, um, you mentioned criminality, for these cool guys coming there and being like, uh, showing all the things, the goodies they have and try to recruit these young, unsecure uh, young, young boys, mainly boys in, in this. Uh, and, and it all stems from also things like our, the housing situation is severe for many because they're big families, still are big families. And, and we build houses for small families in Sweden. So as, as soon as the boys, not the girls, get um, uh, big enough, you, you let them play out on the street. But out on the street, you have these cool guys coming there, recruiting them. So it's a dangerous situation in the suburbs of our big cities. This is not happening in smaller um, villages. So I think one very important part is also to focus on how to, to uh, the housing situation for many of the, these families, big families. You can see it in the COVID-19 situation too. You had an, uh, um, an excess of cases in the suburbs with a lot of migrants because uh, when you go deeper into it, you can see that they, they live uh, many generations in the same small flats. And of course, that's not optimal when it comes to, a, to an epidemic like this. Of course. Yeah, these uh, surveys that you do, uh, coming back to those again, the, the, the most, I think the most famous chart from World Value Survey is this uh, 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 cultural map that has been created by uh, Christian Welzel and Ronald Engelhardt and yourself, maybe, or those two. I don't know who are the... Yeah, they started and I've done now the migrant uh, culture maps. Yeah. So we, we work okay. together, but basically well, it's Roman. Yeah. And it's, it, it, there, is, there, is a, there is a basic one with, mm -hmm. with two dimensions and it's really super interesting to delve into it. Mm -hmm. And this map or chart expresses, uh, as I said, two dimensions, horizontally and vertically, respectively. And the one is the traditional versus secular rational values. And the other one is survival versus self-expression values. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory in a way, but, but could you please uh, explain these dimensions a little bit more so we understand what they are showing? Uh, it, it all started with Ron Ingelot and uh, when he did a study, uh, The Silent Revolution, where he saw changes, cohort changes, I mean, from age group to age group, there was a, there was a slow movement from, from uh, towards more self-expression values or emancipated values, as we also call it today, uh, which was gradually changing and that it was happening, this process in most countries. So he's, he got the idea of making a map. And when you plot a map, you have coordinates. So you have a lot of questions behind each dot. In, 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 you have factor scores that you calculate and it's 
it was uh, quite brilliant uh, developed this the, the the measures that we have it's now heavily validated because we've been doing this for so many for decades now uh, one could actually see from one wave to the we, we do a wave every fifth year so you could what, go what, what is a wave in your survey the wave is uh, that's you do or you do you go back to the same country after five years you do it once for example, in Sweden, we did first one, 1981, and then you go back to Sweden and you do a new wave, wave two. So we have done eight, seven waves, and we're now starting to do the eighth. So we have seven waves, and then you can compare these dots. You can you 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 do a map, and where you use these um, axes, as you said, uh, for for to look at religious, secular, and to look at uh, uh, from from a uh, more more self-expression values and then you can see how countries moves from one map and then when you do the second and the third map uh, so the one that you probably talk about is the one now from the sixth wave because that's we will do now one from the seventh wave it's just about i have it already actually but it's not published yet but what you can see then is a slow movement towards the upper uh, corner right corner yeah, you you have the, you have made also animate animations yeah. where you can yes, see yes. We did that on, on, on youtube people people can find it on youtube i think if they yeah, search yeah, that was me doing that because i search that, what should we what shall they search for institute for future studies it, that is iffs.se yeah so if, if people are on youtube so they search for iffs and then dot se yeah, and then the, you, you win. Yeah, and then you you can also do it via the World Value Survey, which is uh, the long one, worldvaluesurvey.org. You can also find it that that way. Uh, uh, you know the 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 legal seat for the whole global World Value Survey is actually at the Institute for Future Studies in Stockholm, but it is a global network, and we have a headquarter in Vienna with a president, and we have uh, several. Uh, vice presidents and we have PIs, principal investigators in all the countries. And it's like a member um, driven organization. So they are all members and we gather every now and then and then they elect executive committee and scientific advisory board, etc. So it's, a, uh, it's quite elaborate. Um, going back to the, to, to the chart, the map, culture map of Ron, uh, when he saw this, this development kind of, it, keeping in constant the exactly same questions and, 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 and um, uh, how, how it was done. I mean, uh, it, it started to, to a process of understanding how global change is going on when you talk about values and social norms. Uh, and then some people said, well, this is really a Western biased way of looking upon development. And rightly, you can say so because it is measuring human rights, uh, the, the values of human rights, you have the measures uh, consists of first something called autonomy. And that is, what do you wish for your children? What do you wish for the future of your children? Do you want them to be independent? Or should they obey the parents, uh, obey religion? Or you have a lot of questions. And then people can, can pick and choose in a menu, so to speak. How, what do I think is important for, for, for children for the future? So that's one part. Uh, the second part is on gender issues, equality. Do women have the same, same rights as men for, for, for to job, for study, for starting your own company, etc. The women's rights. The third one is choice. That's um, 
what kind of choices do you feel that you have the right to and um, you have family values in a way you say it's questions like um, marriage if you can you can you can you divorce is that okay on a 10 grade scale to to, to do that uh, homosexuality is that okay uh, and uh, abortion as sensitive issues in many countries but they answer the yeah, question i can imagine and they say well it's never um, uh, possible or they say yes it can be there. so in a scale they can be from one to ten and you can measure and you put this into one measure called called choice then where, where you have the 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 divorce, you have the abortion, you have the homosexuality. Then you can go deeper down in sub-indices and, and develop them. So these are all sub-indices that comes into one uh, super index, so to speak. And the final one, that's voice, how to make your voice heard. And that's okay. where you have a democracy, where you have a question about, can you make your voice heard at, at, at the kitchen table, in the village you live, in the society, with the government? How do you feel about your possibility of making your voice heard? Then you squeeze all these four sub-indices into one, and that is the culture map that you see. Oh. So, so it's, it's not an easy, uh, quick fix to do it. I mean, it takes time and it's, you, you need to have uh, the syntax uh, the syntax for, for to do it. But actually anyone can do it and, re and reproduce it if they like to, because the data is all there and we have it for free on our website. So anyone can go in and download the, the data, download the syntax files and do, do, do it themselves. So it's been verified many times. And I think that's why it's been almost iconic because it's, it can be used in the classroom situation with kids when they are 10, 15 years to start a discussion about how come that we in our country, whichever country that might be, uh, that we are just there? And then you start get the kids to think about their own life mm. and about these things. So you get, you get trained into thinking about the global we mm. and the us within the global we. So it's a yeah. very important process. Powerful, powerful tool, really. I mean, and having done these surveys with the same exact same questions for so long, periods of time it's a gold mine really yeah uh, so we have this as a, as a core never changing it because we need to have the time series and there are other questions too too which we have never changed uh, but then we add on some questions and we take away some questions and it's heavy negotiations before each way because oh, really i mean different researchers are interested in different things me for example i felt that we didn't have enough questions on on migration, so last uh, wave we, uh, we managed to get some some questions on migration in. Uh, that's, that was good because I would concur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, because I, it's I, important I, today. I mean, yeah. uh, I foresee a big discussion for the next uh, wave when it comes to climate and um, environmental issues because we are not good enough on that either. Mm. Um, so I mean, and then one can say we're also doing some development work like. Uh, normal population you start interviewing when they are 18 and then upwards as long as possible. Uh, we would like to, uh, we, that's a group of, of researchers at the Karolinska Institute, which I work together with on, on uh, women's issues, we would like to start with age 15 because the, the, the teenage, the adolescent period is so important. And that's what uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has helped us with funding. So now we're doing that for some countries. And the dream is to be able to do that globally because it's so important. So that's one kind of quality improvement, one could say, 
of the concept, still keeping the concept, but adding on. Another uh, such a thing is to add on, for example, batteries like now on COVID-19. Things are happening, you need to have a battery on that. A third thing, which is a dream, but I mean, you, it, it all started with- Dream big. Dream yeah. big. Yeah. And the dream is to, to go into the slum, slum areas, because these people are not in, in, in the censuses. So when you draw your sample from a census, you will miss a lot of people living in slum areas. In a, in a town like Nairobi, 80% mm -hmm. of the population lives in slum areas. You need to go in there. And then you, you need to do that with people who they trust with people or themselves. So people talking the different languages. I mean, you have a small Somalia in East Lay and area in, in, in Nairobi, for example, and it's the same wherever you go. So we could increase the quality, but then we need to have support from powerful organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There are others, many others too. I just mentioned them because the, they have supported us, but there are many others. So we need mm -hmm. to widening the, uh, our ambitions we can't just sit there and say, oh, this is great what we have done. We need to continue. Yes, and this chart, this map, cultural map is of course fascinating and people really have to see it by themselves. It's not possible to see it here on the podcast in the audio version, uh, possibly in a video version uh, later. But uh, we, we, can, we, can, we can talk a little bit about it anyway without mm -hmm. having it in front of our eyes. I know that, um, you have lumped groups of countries together in different uh, sub subgroups, so to so to speak. Uh, and our country, Sweden, is an is an outlier here. It is really in the top right corner of this chart, and which means that that Sweden is the this the single the country that is that is most extremely uh, let's see here now secular rational and most extremely self-expression kind of country. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's not, I mean, Sweden is actually the outlier, but there, there is a group of countries in that area in the mm -hmm. chart. I think it's mainly Protestant countries or... Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and then in the other end, at the other end of the chart, you find some African Islamic countries. So what is, what is can you explain why this is? What is the, the, the difference between these two opposite corners? Yeah. Uh, well, one could say that if you, if you take these four sub-indices that uh, constitutes this big, where you get, get it, you could say that it, it is a, a Western bias. So because uh, if you get these four together, you, you kind of get the, the goal that you have in, in, in the Human Rights Declaration. I mean, that's pretty much geared to the human rights declaration with people's right to, to, to make their voice heard and et cetera, this which I mentioned. So yes, you could say that it's a Western bias, but it's based on what the agreement that all countries all around the world, almost all, not everybody, but many countries around the world. Um, but what I said when I was teaching uh, um, doctoral students in, in, in um, in Cairo and in other places there in, in Amman, etc., that you can you can change the map if you would like to. If you feel that this is too western and it's too, you are down there uh, on, on on the left side. Well, on the on the other hand, it doesn't mean it's not uh, uh, nothing that says that, for instance, traditional values should be <clears throat> something. Uh, negative. Uh, it, I mean, if you like traditional values, you, you you might be happy that your country is in that corner. 
Yes, you, you are and many, 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 many people in, in countries, in, for example, African Islamic countries are. So actually we've done seven or I think it's seven different culture zones around the world. And the zones goes together pretty neatly. For example, if you talk about the MENA region, I mean, religion is very important. It's mainly Muslim countries and religion and tradition and family life is very important. And family life is something that you defend strongly also when you're migrating. You change a lot of values, but you do not change religion. Uh, and you should not because there is a freedom of religion. Uh, what can be a bit more problematic when it comes to family values is that uh, some values that you do have are not uh, accepted in a Western country. Mm, not compatible with, with, the, with the law. Unrelated no, uh, uh, violence, for example, uh, oppression of, of, uh, of children's right to choose partner for themselves when if they would like to, to, to have a family, etc. There are problems in this, of course. But basically, there's been very little critique uh, around the, the map because it kind of plots. You can see these culture zones in it. They're very much uh, based on the origin of, of uh, religion, as you said. You can see up in the northern parts of, of, of Europe that it's mainly the Protestantic. I mean, you have the Netherlands, you have um, Germany, you have UK and the Nordic countries pretty much going together. And you can see that differs from, for example, Eastern Europe, which has another origin when it comes to the Greek Orthodox um, origin if you talk about the religious part of it. So you can go over the world and you can see that there are, there are these zones, cultural zones. They're not, um, they are not, uh, they, they do change. They're not chiseled in stone. They're... No, they're not, that's a good expression. <laughs> yes, they are not chiseled in stone. They, are, they do change, but they change much slower than certain other values do. So you can see there's different, um, the time pace, if you look at Sweden, for example, how come that we are up there in the north? I mean, that's a, that's a question I very often get. Uh, yeah. Then we need to go back to history. We need to go back. We, have, we can go back to the Vikings if we want to, where the women had a, a, a right to, 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 to also um, get money into the system, the, the kind of money they have, I mean, like, the boats, like the housing, etc., cetera, uh, could go from, a, from woman to woman too. Um, but then it, of course, back and forth, back and forth, but slowly a, um, a development where many people had, uh, had a, got a safer life started early. You can see the, the role of the church, and that's why the Protestant is probably, because it had the idea that everybody should be able to read and write. And uh, so you started to train people from 17th century onwards, and you checked that every year, and that, that was an obligation for the priests, uh, uh, parish priests, to, to, to check that every individual in the parish could read and write, and that it's, they kept books on it <laughs> with, mm. with, with grades on how much they could if they, if they knew the catechism, etc. A lot of this stuff. So, and that continued and continued and developed the societies into that people had knowledge by themselves because you had a first in the world we had a system with a with a mandatory school system 1842 that's quite that's early really early to have a mandatory school system so you can see how everything builds brick by brick into what uh, became a democratic functioning society where everybody had, had a voice. I mean, it took time, but it happened. So one explanation is history. 
Mm. And then you can add on to history things like um, environment. If you live in a country very cold, you need to plan. You learn to survive by planning. So if you put on an uh, element of planning into this, uh, it helps people to go together because if, if you cooperate, it will make you survive in this cold climate much better. So you can add on a lot of complexity into it, but still the, the main timeline of development, uh, I mean, we were a very poor country in the 19th century. We, we were starving. People were emigrating. Uh, one million of our, our four million. Em, em, emigrating to the United States, yes. Yeah, to yeah. the United States, because they, could, they couldn't survive here. So we have, you know, when, when I teach with the migrants, I have a, a photo from where I was born in my village, the, literally the house where I was born. And that was a, a poor part of northern Sweden. And when they see that, and I point at another house, which was uh, the toilets, and, but you have snow in the winter school, yes. Did you go there, out there? You were a professor and you, you, you lived like that when you were young? <laughs> yes, we all lived like that. Most of us, there were very few people who were upper class. Most people lived like that. They, we lived on the earth. And then they feel, okay, it's us. Uh, maybe uh, we had even better at home, they feel, and then we have a discussion. Then, mm. then starts discussion on what drives development. Because this and it's is all true. relative. You can you, you're always living here and now, and you see the problems that you have here and now, and you often forget what 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 was the reality just a few decades ago. Yeah, you ago. forget so fast. I mean, we, we talk about one two generation back. I mean, yeah. my my aunties and and where I I remember when I grew up all these stuff. I mean, so so I think it's very important when we try to analyze and explain how how do what what are the driving factors for development because yeah. that's what we seek. And I can very clearly see the importance of values and social norms. And now, for example, why, why does it work relatively well with the, with the, the classic uh, epidemic com, uh, combat that we started with? Well, because people trust each other. It's tr when you have trust in a society, when you have confidence in the, in the different authorities, uh, you, you do understand that we, you need to take care. Uh, I got an email this morning from a lady who was out in a place out in the nature where people are walking and she said, it's so fantastic. I, I was so surprised that people are really respectful to each other and you, you don't just bump into other people, you, 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 you wave to each other in distance. I mean, I get quite happy when I hear that. And I get quite worried when I see the young people in Stockholm sitting very tight together. <laughs> Completely different story, I can tell yeah, you Yeah, but, but because I believe they have grown up with this high trust society. They, they don't, they can't realize that it's really dangerous. And, mm. and so that's the backside of high trust society. If you Maybe they just think that, well, there are not any elderly people around here, so there, there's no problem, but they don't, they don't understand that they can transmit the disease exactly. uh, afterwards. 80% of the young people that uh, in, in our COVID-19 study now that lives in the big cities, not, not in the rest of the country, um, um, uh, they're not worried at all. No. La total lack of worry. And that is yeah. too. You were mentioning before that these, uh, that, well, we're talking about the, the possibility of seeing this cultural map uh, animated so we can see the, the, the movements. And how, how is it with that? Is it, are, and, and, and we're talking about Sweden being an outlier in the, the upper right corner. Is every country moving? Is every country, for, uh, firstly, is every country moving on this map? And if so, in what direction? Are they all moving in the same direction? Or are there different kind of trends going on all the time here? 
Mm, there are different trends, certainly. For example, you can see in Latin America, you can see a downward movement uh, when it comes to, to many of, of the classical measurements that we... So, so from what to what? Well, if, if you take, for example, now Brazil and, 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 and what you have seen in, in now with the COVID-19, I mean, they, ha they have 100,000 deaths in, in, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, one can say it's because of Bolsonaro, but I mean, that's to make it very simple. I think it also has to do with this uh, decreasing uh, uh, trust and confidence in institutions. So, when, so what when dimension was, are we talking about here? From, from uh, self-expression towards survival? There is, another, uh, there is another way of measuring too, which is not on the culture map, and that's uh, uh, trust. And when, when we measure trust, because we compare the map, and the trust measure. The trust measure consists of, of uh, two parts. One is general trust. You ask people to, to choose between most people can be trusted or you can't be too careful when dealing with other people. And then you can see which countries are people answering most people can be trusted. I mean, Sweden is super high on that, the whole, all Nordic countries. In Latin America, fewer and fewer say most people can be trusted. Ah, okay. then you, yeah, and then you go on to the next uh, level in the analysis. And then you ask, um, you ask about um, whom they trust. If you trust people of your own family, people of your own neighborhood, um, people of your own country, of your own religion, people you meet for the first time. And then you can uh, divide this into what we call in-group trust and out-group trust. In-group trust is universal. Everybody feels trustful vis-a-vis -vis their families, almost everyone, uh, people are in your own neighborhood. But uh, when you ask about people of another religion or another nation or people you meet for the first time, that we call out-group trust that's generally very low. So that one is, for example, going down in, in many countries in Latin America. It's still very high in our countries. It hasn't gone down, but what one would not be surprised if the outgroup trust will go down a bit. Mm. Uh, because when things are, when, when people get scared for, for things like now with the pandemic, it would be natural for people to maybe feel like, oh, that person comes from another country. Maybe he comes with a, the, with a virus, etc. I mean, you have these kind of discussions. Yeah. But did, did you see it go down when we had this so-called migration wave, the big migration uh, episode in 2015, 2016? Is it too early to see if there was a change? Actually, a slow, uh, yes, it, it, it decreased. We had a slow decrease, but then it came up now again. Okay. So we had one momentarily, we had one for wave six. There was, there was a decrease, but it's gone up now again. And you can see the same uh, in Norway and Denmark and Finland. But uh, one thing that we tend to forget about when it comes to the migrants, this is what the, the, the dominant population in Sweden answers. And the problem with the world value survey and all other surveys is that you do not include migrants because it's so difficult. There's so many uh -huh. languages and they also don't, they don't, they, they don't feel self-esteem high enough to be there and answering. To, to, to and answer now. And, and for these firms doing it it, 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 it is too complicated, too expensive if they are going to do it in seven or 10. And that's why we did the migrant world value survey now. And we've done that in Sweden. And because I just felt that we, we, we can't accept that 1 million of our 10 million people in Sweden, the migrants, the non-European migrants, we, we, can't, we don't know about their values. So I got support from, uh, from um, uh, the government 
uh, to be able to work with that. And we have done 8,000 interviews during two years with my, our, uh, migrants from non-European countries to see how is their values changing. And what we can see is that the level of trust is much lower, which is understandable because they come from societies with lower trust. But what's interesting to see is depending on how long time they stayed in Sweden, we can see a gradual increase. So trust increases, but it takes time. And this mm. is so important to understand when we, uh, when we talk about migrants, it takes time, but, but it do changes. They see that uh, they can trust authorities, they see that uh, they can trust each other and that Swedes are not that bad. So, and, and then increases goes up. So, so you, need to, um, you need to distinguish on, on a number of years to see the process. You can't just do one measure once. You I need understand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, why, that's very interesting, I think, about what, when you uh, ask about development. You and Christian Welsel and Ronald Engelhardt wrote a paper a few years ago, uh, which I found very uh, intriguing, that said, uh, I didn't read the whole paper. I read the abstract and <laughs> some things around it. But anyway, it's, it, was about, it was about the declining willingness to die for one's country, which I think is really super interesting because well, many people are still very afraid. To I beg your pardon? For one's country. Oh, to fight, to fight for one's country, not, not die, but fight for one's country. Well, eventually you might die if you fight for, yeah. one's country, for, for your country. Yeah. Uh, and is that, is that an expression, would you say, of um, a general movement towards uh, those, these dimensions, um, uh, uh, the sexual, secular, rational, uh, or rather the, uh, the dimension self-expression? A general move towards that is this, is this an expression of that, or, or is it an expression of something else that is happening? In the big picture, I think it is. But uh, zooming on that question, willingness to fight for one's country, uh, we were so surprised to see that Sweden and the other Nordic societies as well were scoring very high, while at the very same time, when we looked at confidence in the armed forces, that was not that high. How can you say, answer, that you, you, that you are, have willingness to fight for your countries, uh, country and still you are not putting the armed forces in that? You couldn't understand that contradiction. That was why we, we digged into it, trying to understand it and did some analytical work with it. And out came a result, which we th I think is pr pretty strong. And that is people are willing to defend the values like democracy and, and things. And very many people defending the values. It's actually not defending the armed, working with the armed forces or some, something like that. And it's interesting, I did a study with the armed forces and the people within the armed for, so forces also have the same concept that is defending the values. So mm -hmm. when the Swedish armed forces are working in, 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 as they've been in Afghanistan and many other places, it's for defending the values of democracy, of peace, of understanding, etc. So this is a very strongly um, founded uh, value system. And you can, so you can see that when you talk about trust and you talk about confidence, it's shown in many different ways. And this is one way to say that, yes, we're willing to, to defend this country, to fight for this country, but not with arms. We're defending the values 
because we ask these additional questions. Uh, so it's really an expression of defending the values. Mm. And that is something that... But not, but not the nation state per se, not the no, nation state. No, the values of democracy, of, of, of as you say, self-expression values. I mean, it's an expression of that, of the very same thing. So they go together. It's an expression of that. Self-expression yeah. is a part of... Uh, it. From that comes the logical consequence that you are also prepared to defend these values. Fascinating. These are these data are so so uh, interesting and so good to have and it's such a gold mine for for researchers all over the world and for ordinary people who just want to want to check out how the world is uh, developing and and where the trends are going. So once again, can you just uh, tell the audience where where they can find this uh, cultural map and all all the other information that you have about the trends? First, you have the World Value Survey's own uh, homepage, and, and that is World Values Survey in one long sentence with two S in the middle, worldvaluessurvey.org. There, when you come to that website, uh, on the left side, you can see download uh, data, and then you can go into the online analysis, and you can choose any country we have, and you can choose time series, or you can choose a variable if you're interested in one specific variable. And you get the data both in figures, in percentage, in absolute numbers, but also as a graph. And we've made it that way so that it's possible for youngsters to use it from 10, 12 years of age and upwards. Uh, you can also download SPSS files if you are more knowledgeable in, in statistics and use that one. You can also entrance via the Institute for Future Studies, where we have our legal seat. So then you go into iffs.se. That stands for okay. Institute for Future Studies.se. There you have also more specific information about the Nordic countries. I am responsible for a hub for the Northern European uh, part of the world. So you have more, much more data on that part also on this website. And you have some, of course, a lot of things we do in, in, in the Nordic countries with the... Yeah. With the okay. The, with the great, great. Check these homepages out and check this information out. Thank you so much, B. Puranen, for being a guest on Mind the Shift and good luck with your continued research. Thank you so much, Anders.